Hope you've uh, enjoyed this lovely sunny weekend. Hope you've had a good day today, whatever you've been up to. My name is John, and I'm one of the leaders here at New Community Church, and it is really great to have you with us tonight, especially if it is your um, first time here. Really warm welcome to you, and um, yeah, we'd love to, to get to meet you afterwards. Be good to have a, a chat, hear a bit of your story, share a bit of mine as well with you too. And uh, yeah, really good to have you here. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does, does anyone here, did anyone ever have a WWJD wristband? Anyone have a, one of them? Some of you are like, what is that? That is weird. Now, for those who don't know, the WWJD wristbands were a fad that started in the 90s. And basically, like a lot of things in the 90s, it's kind of cool, kind of a bit weird at the same time. And uh, they were these wristbands that WWJD stood for, what would Jesus do? So the whole idea was you wear this wristband, and then, you know, you'd be thinking, should I steal my brother's cookie? And then you see the wristband and be like, no, Jesus wouldn't do that. And it would stop you from doing it, and crisis avoided. And so it was this whole idea, you know, you'd wear it, maybe you'd wear it to school. I did this, I bought it. Uh, I was like, I'm going to wear it to school and all my friends will ask me what it means and then I'll tell them about my faith and there'll be revival breaking out. And, you know, that was the idea anyway. I think I lasted maybe one or two days before I bottled it. I was just too embarrassed and explaining to people and I was like, nah, I get bullied enough as it is without wearing this wristband. Uh, I don't need any more reasons for people to bully me. Um, so that was the whole thing. Now, the, the thing, other than the fact that, I mean, they had multiple colors and there was all sorts going on, but the the thing that was most interesting, I think, for me, like, you know, as an adult looking back is, the problem with the question, what would Jesus do, is sometimes it's not always massively obvious. And if when you uh, read the New Testament, when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, if you're anything like me, sometimes you read stories about Jesus, and you're like, I would not have expected Jesus to do that. Like, that, that was not very Jesus-like what Jesus just did. Like, that, that's confusing. So, for example, at, at one point, he's at a wedding, and it's at the end of the wedding, and the bar's been drunk dry, and you'd think normally Jesus would say, all right, it's time to call it a night, let's head home, like, you know, kind of, we, we've, we've done our bit now. But instead, he turns the equivalent of water into the equivalent of 800 bottles of wine, it's not really what you'd expect of Jesus or especially of Christians. Like, that's not the vibe they really have. Or then there's, there's another moment where um, uh, uh, this rich religious guy comes to him and is like, look, I'm obeying all the rules, Jesus. I'm doing all the things you're supposed to do to be a good person. Does that mean I'm in, like I'm part of, of your gang now? And Jesus is like, mm, yeah, almost. Just one thing you need to do. And he says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And you're like, chill out, Jesus. Like, there's no command in the Bible that says that. Like, I don't know if you've read it, but that doesn't come up anywhere. And it's like, why, why are you commanding this person to sell everything? And then there's another moment where um, he goes to the temple, the place of worship. But instead of people worshiping, there's people, there's like this kind of corrupt farmer's market where they're selling kind of cows and cattle and doves and all these sorts of things. But they're kind of screwing people over and it's all dodgy. And rather than say, all right, guys, like, I just not, I'm not sure this is a good idea. He starts flipping over the tables and it says he made a whip. Like he took the time to make a whip. And then he says he started driving them out. So not only is he beating the animals, he's beating the men and getting them out of the temples. It's like WWE Smackdown in the middle of Jerusalem. And it's like, what is going on? Like, I thought this is sweet Jesus, meek and mild. And he's there whipping these dudes out of the temple. So Jesus does a lot of things that don't fit into our nice, neat and tidy view of Jesus. Who kind of always wears this white, white robe that never gets dirty. And he always kind of speaks in this weird kind of angelic voice. He's very different than what we might expect. And we're going to look at a story 
this morning, this evening, of, uh, of Jesus. And again, he does something that is a little bit odd. But, like with these other stories, it reveals a lot about who he is and what he stands for. So we're going to be looking at a story in John chapter 11. And the words will become, be up on the screen, and if you've got a Bible with you, you can follow it in there. We'll be kind of jumping around a little bit, because it's quite a long story, so we're going to go through the highlights. So John chapter 11. So it says this in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, a guy called Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. First weird thing Jesus does, he finds out one of his closest mates is on his deathbed. And rather than rush to his aid, it says he waited for two days longer before leaving. So eventually he goes to Bethany, but sure enough, it's too late. He's left it too long and Lazarus has died. And so Martha, Lazarus' sister, comes out to him and mourns, and eventually Mary comes out and is kind of just, you know, devastated about their brother dying. In verse 30, we hear what happens next. It says, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were, in, uh, were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come to her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. This is Jesus. He was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. What would Jesus do? Well, in this story, it's another surprise, another thing that we wouldn't expect for Jesus to do. And I, I think the thing that really strikes me in this is when he arrives at the village, Rather than say, oh, guys, guys, chill out. I know you're all crying. I know you're all devastated, but I've got a plan. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Here's some tissues. Calm down. It's going to be a party any second. Just, it's okay. It's okay. But instead, he weeps knowing that he's about to raise him from the dead. Have you ever thought that's a little bit weird? So what do we learn from this story? Well, first of all, Jesus cares deeply. He cares deeply. It says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I think why this is so helpful to see is we can sometimes think of God as Jesus as being this kind of aloof, kind of all-powerful, omniscient, higher being who's kind of distant from our day-to-day -day lives. Yet yeah, saying here that the, the, the death of just this one person of the billions he's created deeply moved him in spirit and greatly troubled him. Jesus cares deeply. Next, this teaches us, we, we learn from this story, just something simple, that Jesus cries. Jesus wept. And it's often a, a badge of honor in our society for, for people, especially men, to not cry. 
to not cry. Unless it's, I'm a Liverpool fan last night. If you're watching the screens, there was a lot of crying. So it's kind of weird. It's like, it's okay to cry about sports, but anything kind of uh, other than that, it's like, it's not really a manly thing to do. Sports, fine. Anything else, mm, no, no, no. And it's this really interesting thing where you, are, you can chat to some people, especially guys, and you say to them, when was the last time you cried? Had this conversation with someone once, and they said, I can't remember. I'm pretty, pretty sure it was back in 98 when England knocked out, uh, were knocked out by Argentina in the World Cup. And it's like that, that's kind of, I think that was it. But what we learn from this story is uh, this idea of, uh, of not crying being a sign of strength is not a kingdom thing. It's a culture thing. It's uh, a British thing and not a Christian one. Jesus wept. Thirdly, we learn that Jesus wants us to know that he relates to our pain. There is power in sharing suffering with other people. In my own life, there's nothing I've ever experienced that has brought people together more than suffering with them. Genuinely, nothing else brings people together like suffering. And when Jesus had arrived, he could have been quick to rush them on. He could have said, look, guys, guys, calm down. But pain is one of the the key things of our life that really gives us the richness of what it means to be human. It gives us perspective. In fact, it's one of the the valley moments that allows us to experience the mountaintops. And Jesus didn't want to rob them of, of, of that moment. And equally, he doesn't want to rob us of it. So Jesus cries with them. And they see his compassion. It says in verse 12 that they say of Jesus, see how he loved Lazarus. It revealed to them, just as it reveals to us when we weep together, just how much we care for one another. When we see how someone else is moved when we're struggling. And today we're going to look at that whole concept, concept, how we can weep with those who weep. And it's something that's talked about in Romans chapter 11. So we're going to be looking at that chapter now. It's going to come up on the screen. And this is a a passage that shows us what it looks like to support one another as Christian community. How we can do this side by side. That's our current sermon series. How can we live side by side? So Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. How do we do that? Well, it says, abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that verse. That's such a cool concept. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I'm a very competitive person. Anyone who's kind of played games with me, I can't really hide it. It's something I'm really competitive in my nature. And I love that this verse is saying, look, if you're going to be competitive about anything, be competitive about trying to outdo one another in showing honor. So, for example, one of the things I love doing is sending people cards. I really enjoy doing that, sending people encouraging notes and things like that. Then a couple of weeks ago, someone not only sent me a card, someone I'm not particularly close with, but I arrived to my office, there was a card there, and someone had also bought me a plant. And I think the, the reference was because I, I make a point in my book about how I'm terrible at keeping plants alive. And they're like, here's one to give you another go, try it out. And I loved it. I loved turning up to not just an encouraging card, but a gift. And I was like, Man, I need to up my game. Like, I thought I was doing well with the cards, but now a a plant as well. Like, I need to try something new. There's something contagious about honoring one another that makes you want to do the same. 
That's the kind of culture we want to build here at 6 o'clock church. So let's keep reading. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Saying, be generous with one another. Give to one another. Have people around. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. It's not an easy one. Bless and do not curse them. Don't talk badly about them. Don't gossip about them. And this is the key verse, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Kind of sounds nice, doesn't it? That's a horrible one. That's horrible. See, we, we hate to admit it, but often when someone else is rejoicing and they've experienced something really cool, it's not always our natural reaction to want to rejoice with them. So you find out from someone, oh, uh, yeah, I just got a promotion at work. And you're in a job that you hate and the pay is terrible. And they're telling you about this pay rise they got. And you're like, yeah, yeah, cool. Oh, that's great. That's, yeah, that's great. Oh, you know, you're, you're sat in your tent in Devon and the rain's pouring down and you're just like, wow. And you go on your phone and you're on Instagram and all of a sudden you see Dave in, in kind of Italy on a cruise and he's tanned and you're just like, oh, great. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's amazing. Great. I'm really happy for you, Dave. So cool. Or so and you find out, oh, they, they've just got, you know, uh, their mortgage extended so you can move into that bigger house. And, you know, it's got more bedrooms and a, a conservatory with bifold doors or whatever the latest trend in is. And you're still living with your parents. Like, you can't even afford to rent, let alone buy. And it's like, that's great. I'm really, really happy for you. But what about stuff that's even deeper and it may be even more painful? What about Weddings. I know a lot of us here find weddings really hard. You see the bride come in and everyone's celebrating. You see him in that dress and the special day. And you're there thinking, will I ever have that special day? And you want to rejoice with them, but seeing that image is difficult for you. You think, what about me? Or you get invited to a baby shower. And someone's having a, a child. Maybe it's not even their first one, second, third, fourth. And you want to desperately have a child. And you can't. Maybe you're not with anyone or you're, you know, you're, you're married and you're trying for kids. You've been trying for years and it hasn't been happening. It can be hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. And more than ever with the rise of social media, this whole thing of comparison it's a big deal. It's a massive thing. I struggle with it loads, and many of us do here too. And it's robbing us. Theodore Roosevelt said this. He said, comparison is the thief of joy. It steals from you. See, here's what happens when you compare to one another. In any area of your life, here's what happens. You're placing yourself and them in a hierarchy. See, either they have something you want but don't have, so they're above you, and you experience jealousy... Or you have something that they don't have, and you feel pride, you're, I'm better than them, I've got something they want. And so you're either led into pride or led into jealousy, and neither of those things bring unity. Instead, they create distance. 
To combat comparison, we need to use celebration. To rejoice with those who rejoice. And this is going to become more and more of a big thing. As many of us, especially younger people, grow up and we see people kind of going ahead and doing the things we wish we could do. We need to cultivate a community where we rejoice with those who rejoice. The next one. Weep with those who weep. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today because this is such a big deal. Now, all of us have uh, different experiences of suffering. There's people in the room here today who, to be honest, you haven't really experienced a whole lot of suffering in your life. There's other people who've experienced incredible suffering, horrible, horrible suffering. And suffering comes in all sorts of different forms. It could be the loss of finances. It could be the loss of a relationship. It could be the loss of a person through death or divorce or distance. It could be the loss of health. Heard about someone today, you know, even a young person struggling with serious health things. And it's difficult to deal with. And all of us will have different stories, whether it's from our own experience of things we've been through or things we've witnessed in other people. And here's a bit of my story to give a bit of context and kind of my perspective as I come into this topic. So my story is this. Till my early 20s, I would say I didn't really experience anything of suffering. I had a very easy life. I was very fortunate. I had kind of a loving family home and uh, things in school were okay. Yeah, I got a bit of the odd bullying here and there. But for the most part, like things were okay. And um, I enjoyed church life and friendship and sports. And um, life, was, life was good. Life was pretty easy. And I wouldn't have said I didn't understand suffering, but I, I didn't. And then in my, my early 20s, I um, experienced my first heartbreak. Um, the first day of university, I was on the phone with my girlfriend, who I thought it was going to be a long-term thing with. And um, she broke up with me, first day of university. Took me a long time to get over. And then uh, I experienced some health problems. My digestive system after a holiday in Egypt, that was a bit of a disaster. My stomach got messed up, and all of a sudden, what I can eat changes. And then I got injuries, and having been uh, someone who played sports three, four times a week, I couldn't play any sports for about two years. It was difficult. That was my outlet, and it was gone. Track forward a few years, I was um, working in a church and loved it. I thought I'd be there long term. And this is obviously a long story and one maybe I'll get a chance to share properly one day. But um, the leader of the church had a bit of a kind of, um, yeah, he, a bit of a failure and ended up, I ended up losing my job and people in the church were turned against me. And not only did I lose my job and lose my church, but um, a lot of my friends in the church refused to speak to me anymore. And it's a really, really painful time. And then I moved down to Sidcup. And um, all the tra- if you've ever moved somewhere new, you know, it takes a long time. You feel isolated. You feel lonely. It takes a lot of time. And uh, within a few months of moving here, I got a phone call uh, to say that my mate Jimmy, uh, who's 21, known him since I was a little kid, um, had uh, been driving down a country road, hit a car head on, um, been killed in a car accident. Messed me up pretty bad. Um, and then three months later, I got a call um, to say that my friend Claire, who was 27, um, had been out jogging, um, and she just dropped dead. I still don't know why. And for me, like I, I, like I say, I, I, that was a journey for me. It was painful. I'm still learning lessons through it. But through that whole process, the reason I share that is, is through it all, I realized how powerful it is when you have people who come alongside you and weep with you 
when you weep. And I want to explore some of those things today because, to be honest, I didn't really have much teaching in this. I didn't really have much experience in this. And I wish I'd know these things that we're going to look at today before I'd been through all of that myself. And it's important to say that in this life, we should expect suffering. And some of you are like, obviously, like I've been through enough. And some of you are like, okay, I'm not so convinced. I've lived a long time and it hasn't been that bad. But the Bible makes it clear, both in the Old and New Testament, that life is full of suffering, that it happens, and we shouldn't be shocked when it does. And today, I'm not trying to give a kind of theological explanation for why suffering happens and kind of getting out a textbook trying to explain to you why this or that has gone on in your life. Today, I want to look at how we can support one another when the inevitable happens and we need someone to support. Now, when it comes to supporting other people, I think having experienced this myself and seen how other people respond, it's really interesting the different reactions that we can have when people are suffering. So some of us try really hard to say the right thing, but end up saying something that does more harm than good. Others of us are so uh, unsure about what to say that we think, it's just best I don't say anything. I'm just not going to say anything. Some of us don't say anything because we're numb. We get numb to pain. Sometimes that's because we've been through a lot of trauma in our own lives. We've seen so much that actually a coping mechanism is that we just shut down to suffering. Or maybe it's just fatigue from seeing suffering in the media. This is something I've noticed in my own life recently. Just day after day being bombarded with another stabbing, another mass shooting, another natural disaster. And you just get so numb to it that you can't take any more. And some say and feel nothing because we're self-centered. It's not one we'd admit, but the truth is we don't really react or get involved in a situation because we don't really care. Maybe even hearing this topic today, you're like, really? Like, is this actually that relevant to life? And for many of us, whether we like to admit it or not, we care a lot less than we want people to realize. So how do we respond? How do we weep with those who weep? Well, these are some things I've learned from my own experience and from counselors and from pastors. And these are some things that I, I think will be really helpful for us. I want to get really practical. And like I said, I've done many of these things wrong before. I've got some of these things right. And I think these are just some helpful, practical lessons that we can learn as we support one another at Six Scott Church. So first of all, let's look at a few don'ts, some things to try and avoid. Firstly, don't rush into trying to explain the why. Don't rush to explain the why. Now, this might be helpful later on. This might be a really helpful conversation to have later on. But when someone's just experienced something traumatic, it's not a helpful thing to jump straight in and try and explain to them or work out why has this happened. It's a bit like the child who's just crashed on their bike. If the dad came up to them and said, well, son, I think why this has happened is because the velocity in which you were traveling down the hill was kind of over the recommended uh, amount I would say you should usually do, especially with these weather conditions. And then you didn't notice the gravel in the corner. And I think that stone has sliced through your arm. And that would probably be the reason for the bleeding. Now, if a dad did that, that would just be weird. Now, what that child wants in that moment is to be held, to be loved, to be comforted. 
And that's to be our response as well, to comfort one another. So don't just jump straight in. As soon as you've heard about this traumatic experience of asking a question, and I've had this happen to me a lot, don't say, what do you think God is teaching you through all this? Now, some of you are laughing because you've asked that question day one. Now, it might be, and it probably is, that eventually it's good to think about these things. But when someone is, is in pain, can I please ask you, do not ask them that. The word, this is another one. This is another level. Please also don't say, do you think God is trying to teach you a lesson? Again, heard it so many times. So first of all, don't rush to explain the why. Secondly, don't rush to say it could be worse. It could be worse. I think in trying to confront other people, we try to minimize their pain to try and help them to think, well, it's not that bad. But in doing so, we often make it more painful because we're kind of belittling what they've experienced. I heard of a lady who, um, whose son had committed suicide. And the lady in her church came up to her, and I think probably had good intentions. It was trying to comfort her. But she came up to this lady whose son had just taken his own life and said to him, hey, well, it could be worse. I mean, at least you had the privilege of having a son. Many people never have that privilege. Now, I think that lady's intentions may have been good, but obviously that caused a lot of pain to that woman having just lost her child. And the things like that might be true. In fact, that reality is true. What a blessing to have a son. But in that moment, that it could be worse comments cause more pain and less comfort. Thirdly, don't rush to compare sufferings. Saying, yeah, yeah, I understand. I, I've experienced that too. Can be one of the most helpful things can be so helpful. I know for me when I was struggling with grief, talking with people who'd had very similar experiences to me was so, so helpful. I was like, oh, you get it. Like Everyone else seems so confused about what I'm going through, but you understand. Yet having people say, yeah, me too, was also one of the most unhelpful things that happened. Because there's moments where we try to comfort people by saying we can relate, but we compare situations that are nothing alike. So for me, for example, when my mate Jimmy died, car crashed, 21, never got to say goodbye, I'd had, I had several people come up to me and say, I'm so sorry. I completely get what you're going through. I was like, oh, really? They're like, yeah. A few years ago, my, my grand died, and I mean, it was really hard. She was 95, and, you know, it was over a couple years she struggled with cancer, and I was just like, this is not the same as what I'm going through. Like, you got to say goodbye. Your grandma was old. She was this lovely Christian woman. Like, the last time I saw my mate, we had a fight. Like, this isn't the same deal. And then they would go off the back of it and say, and look, I got, it, got over it in a few weeks, and you can do the same. Let's be careful with comparison. Sometimes if we want to help people say that we can understand what they're going through, just a helpful phrase that we can use is saying, I can imagine you must feel this. I can imagine it must be like this for you. And that's just a great way to invite people into conversation without saying that, you know, I've been through the exact same thing, but you're giving a hint that you understand what they're feeling. Really helpful phrase. Okay, so those are some of the things to avoid. What about some of the things we can do? First of all, show empathy. Show empathy. 
The verse we looked at in Romans says, weep with those who weep. So let's be clear. It is not a Christian thing to avoid weeping. I want to say that clear. It's not a Christian thing to avoid weeping. I think some, uh, some theology we've evolved some, from somewhere is that as Christians, we need to always be positive all the time. I was chatting to someone recently who's going through a difficult time, and I, I, was, I, I was kind of shaken by it, and they were shaken by it, and they just said, well, the key thing is we just need to be positive throughout this whole situation. And while I get that, while I get that, the heart behind that is saying, look, we have hope, we have peace. There needs to come a moment where we mourn. It's like with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He doesn't just charge in and say, guys, don't you know the joy of the Lord is your strength? Guys, like, haven't you read the verses about, you know, I'm going to come. If, when you read the Psalms, how many times does the psalmist start with just pouring out their heart? Weeping, saying, God, why have you allowed this? Before jumping to truth, but I know you're this. There needs to be a stage of weeping before rejoicing. Because any rejoicing we have is a bit shallow and superficial. If we've never looked that pain in the face. It's okay to be sad. It's not unchristian to be upset, to be confused, frustrated, and mournful. In fact, I would argue these are things we need to learn to do more. A few practical things on this topic of empathy. First of all, say something. Say something. I think some of us are so nervous about knowing how to respond to suffering that we just say nothing. So when someone says, oh, you know, I've just been through this horrible thing, we literally say nothing. I've seen it recently. In recent weeks, shared some stuff with people, and they just blank because we're so wrapped with fear about saying the wrong thing. And so if you're not sure about what to say, here's just a really helpful thing to say. Just say, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's not rocket science, but it just shows people you care. Second thing on empathy The truth about empathy is that sometimes it's hard to empathize with people, to relate to people, if you've never suffered yourself. And that was my story. My story is ever since I've been, I'd say, kind of broken and bruised and scarred through a lot of things in life, I now get what it means to suffer like I ever did before I'd experienced it myself. And while suffering is horrible, it's such an amazing gift Because it shows you how to comfort and relate to one another. So just as an encouragement to you today, if you'd say you've never been through it, don't fear when it happens. Because it will be used as a blessing in your life and in a blessing in the lives of people you're around. Third thing on empathy. Sometimes we can't weep with those who weep because we can't feel anything. I was chatting to someone recently who said, I'm really struggling with the fact that I just don't really feel, I don't really feel high, I don't really feel low. And so when I'm trying to comfort people, the truth is I just don't really care because I don't feel like I can. And if that's you, can I encourage you, get help. Get help for it. We run a Freed for Purpose course here that can help you look at some of the root issues behind why you can't feel get counseling. Someone very close to me recently has got counseling for this very issue, wanting to look at why they can't feel things. Another thing on empathy. Empathy and enabling sinful responses are not the same thing. 
If someone is responding with bitterness, it's not a loving thing to feed into that. That's not empathy. You're not caring for the person if you do that. Now, what, what sort of situations am I talking about? Here's a really common one. Breakups. If someone has been hurt by someone, it's not empathetic and it's not loving to say things like, well, you are so much better than them anyway. Or when they get with someone new, say, oh, you're so much better than them. I've seen this. I've seen Christians do this. Oh, they're so ugly. They've got no personality. You, 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 you deserve so much better than them. Feeding into that bitterness in the moment will feel great. It will feel great. But in the long term, it will do amazing amounts of damage. It will cause you more pain because bitterness eats away at you. Unforgiveness will steal your joy. So a loving thing to do is not to feed into bitterness when you're supporting someone. Secondly, listen. Listen. People want to be listened to and not fixed. They want to be listened to and not fixed. Sometimes the best way to comfort someone is just to listen to them. And I think, especially again for some of us guys, I'm talking about us quite a bit tonight, but I think our natural tendency is to want to fix a situation. I've noticed this in my life a lot recently. Whenever I hear a problem, I go straight to just saying, okay, so how are we going to sort this out? Now, what are we going to do? What's the next step? Let's make an action plan. Now, eventually, it's good to get to that. Eventually, it's good to come up with practical things, you know, get your spreadsheet out, whatever you want to do to sort out the situation. But to give with, begin with, listen. Listen. Show someone that you want to hear their pain and you're there for them. And listening is especially helpful to give you the opportunity to work out what advice that you're later going to give. One of my mistakes has been that someone will give me the kind of introduction to what's happened and then straight away there, and with my kind of counseling hat on, and I tell them, well, this is what you need to do, and here's the verse, and, and kind of, yeah, I, 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 I get that. And I'm giving them all the, the kind of spiel. And then later on, they tell more of the story, which they should have said at the beginning had I listened. And I'm like, oh, that advice I gave you was terrible. Like, I've got to retract all of that. And had I just been patient and listened to you, I wouldn't have had to go through all this kind of unpicking and saying, I oh, actually ignore what I said. And listen, be patient. One really helpful question is to ask people, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Again, I'm just, some of this will be like, that's obvious. But for many of us, we're not sure what to say. So asking someone, how are you feeling, is a simple question that allows that person to see that you're interested in something deeper than just the kind of headlines of a story and that you care. Thirdly, follow up with people. Follow up with people. When someone shares their grief with you, it's a gift. If someone's been vulnerable with you, they're saying, I trust you enough to share this painful part of my life. And one of the difficult things can be is when you've shared something with someone and they never mention it ever again. Now, let's be fair. Many of us are in situations where we're hearing painful things all the time. In my own life, I've had people say to me, oh, John, you know, I, I came forward during that prayer time and shared that thing with you. I, you know, I'd never told anyone in you know, a few weeks have gone by and you haven't mentioned it once. And if you're in pastoral leadership roles, you're regularly going to have moments where people are sharing things with you. And of course, it's easy to not remember all of them. And we need to have grace for one another. But at the same time, it's important to say, look, I'm going to do my best to follow this up and remember what you shared with me. 
There's an amazing lady in our church called Kathy Shepherd, who's married to Greg Shepherd, one of the elders here. And when I shared with her about my friends dying, she's been amazing, even though it's three years since that moment. Still, every few months, she'll text me or grab me at church on a Sunday morning and say, hey, how are you doing with grief? How's things going? She's been amazing. We're not best friends or anything like that. It's not like we're always talking, but she remembers what happened. And every time she asks, it's so, so comforting. Now, if you have a bad memory like me, and I say this, I feel like every sermon at the moment, maybe not, I'm going to say, if you have a bad memory, use your phone. I wouldn't recommend in this scenario, maybe in the midst of them kind of bawling their eyes out, kind of about one sec, let me just write down what you said. It's probably not the best time. But as soon as you part ways, get it in your phone. Three weeks from today, ask them, hey, how are you dealing with that situation? There's something so comforting when someone remembers what you shared with them and asks you later on. So follow up with people. Fourthly, serve people. Asking people, what can I do to help? When you're going through something difficult, as many of you will know, it can be difficult even to go through practical life in, in kind of simple ways. So you might just, you don't have the energy to cook, or you forget to eat, or you can't really feel like you can get yourself out of the house. And in those moments, when someone comes to you and says, hey, what can I do for you? Hey, can I just help you? I just want to come in. I'm going to clean your house. I know you don't want me to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Serving one another is a great way to bless each other. And if you're, uh, you're not someone who can offer lifts, then offer food. If you're not someone who can offer food, then help them with their garden. There's so many different ways that we can serve one another and make people's pain a little bit more bearable. Fifth, go on a journey with them. Now at the start, when someone's first experienced pain, that isn't really the best time to jump straight in with, like, okay, what is God saying through all this? But the truth is, as we journey with someone, it is right to start asking questions and prompting people towards truth. There's a difference, this is key to say, weeping is different to wallowing. Weeping is different to wallowing. So we mourn with someone, but the end goal isn't to stay there. It's to say, in the right time, in the right place, I want to walk with you to rejoice in. Now, this needs uh, careful attention because we don't want everyone's different. Every situation is different. But eventually, we get to that place through love and patience and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We take them to that place of rejoicing. Now, there's just some practical things. And let me, let me just say this. If you're sat there thinking, ah. Oh, I am terrible at this. I can even think of things in the last few weeks where I have not been great at supporting someone. Let's be a community where we're gracious towards one another. Because we are going to mess this up. Even today, I was thinking back as I'm preparing this, thinking, oh, man, I've given some bad advice at times. Let's be gracious towards one another. Sometimes we'll have the right heart and do the wrong thing. And if someone in this church has tried to support you and you think, wow, you did more harm than good. Forgive them, love them, and move forward. The truth is suffering is complex. And so weeping with those who weep can be complex. Because suffering, as you know, some of you might be thinking, well, this situation I'm trying to help with, actually, they, they brought it on themselves. This wasn't something done to them. This is something they created for themselves. So what am I supposed to do in that situation? Because sometimes people's destructive behaviors cause themselves to be in pain. 
cause himself to be weeping. Some people, some of us, don't want to move on. Some of us want to keep weeping because we found an identity around weeping. We're professional victims. We've learned that every time I weep, I get attention. And so I don't want to stop weeping because what, what if they stop caring about me? And in those situations, it's difficult to know how to best support someone because the loving thing obviously isn't to just ignore them, but then it's not also loving to feed into that. We need wisdom. And the good news is we have help. We're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as the helper, the wonderful counselor. And when you're in those situations where you're talking to someone and you don't know what to say, you can just fire up a prayer and say, Holy Spirit, I need you. And he gives you those wisdom. He gives you those words to say. Suffering can be horrible, but side by side, it can be bearable. Weeping together, as I said earlier, can create community like nothing else can. It's not something for us to run from. It can be a blessing. As Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. At Six O'Clock Church, guys, there's going to be moments. I don't know when or what it will look like, but there'll be increasing moments. There's more come to us and more messy situations. There's going to be suffering amongst us. And how we respond to this will be make or break about what our community looks like. If we weep with those who weep, we will see greater unity and love and community. But let me be clear. If you're thinking, wow, if, if our confidence is based on how we respond to these situations, then I'm not feeling too sure about the future of six o'clock church. But the good news is this. Our, our ultimate hope isn't in us always getting this right. It's not in that. That's not where our ultimate hope is. Our hope is in something far more secure. Our peace is built on something far more stable. And that's this. One day we know there will be no more weeping. No more weeping. The Bible says there is a day coming where Jesus will wipe away every tear. Every tear. When this life ends and the next begin, there will be no more confusion, no more frustration, no more mourning, no more pain because of Jesus. See, Jesus did a lot of unexpected things, kicking over tables and whipping and, uh, and turning water into wine, all these crazy things. But the craziest thing that Jesus did was come to conquer death. And not in a way in which you would assume through amassing great power or military might or huge amounts of wealth or fame or popularity. But instead, he conquered death through death. He displayed power through weakness. Jesus suffered to end our eternal suffering. He did it on the cross once and for all. So that if you're mourning today, you can know peace. If you are weeping today, you can know joy. Because one day, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you can know life forevermore. And this is the foundation of confidence and peace that gets us through the storms of life. That carries us through our times of weeping. Two weeks ago, I, 
uh, found out that my, uh, my auntie, who if you've ever met, she's come to church here a few times, I found out that my auntie, uh, who's like a second mum to me, uh, found out that she has um, cancer in her spine, her ribs, her liver and lungs. And that is obviously one of the worst uh, bits of news I've ever got in my life. And uh, yeah, it was horrible. And it's been amazing to see the support that people have given here at New Community Church. People have been great. It's been great to, to weep together and process this together. So helpful. I've seen the power of this message that we've looked at tonight, lived out in the last couple of weeks. But while that helps, my ultimate peace doesn't come from knowing that other people care. Or knowing that she's going to be okay, that there's going to be some happy ending. My peace comes from knowing that there will definitely be something to rejoice. See, they might try treatment, and if that works, praise God, amazing. There might be a miracle, we're praying for it, and if that happens, praise God, amazing. She'll have a few more, few more years. But if it doesn't, it'll be devastating, but it won't be the end of the story. See, the truth is, my auntie believes in Jesus. The one who at the tomb of Lazarus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In a lot of ways, we don't know the outcome of my auntie's story. But in the most important way, we do. Because whatever happens, the truth is this. While weeping may last for a night, joy will come in the morning. And that is the promise of Jesus. Whatever you are going through today, you can know that whatever happens in this life, that will be but a breath. You don't know if it's going to end today, tomorrow, in 70 years. But whatever happens, the end of the story is joy forevermore. Joy for eternity. That is our hope. And you can know that for yourself today. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're not distant. I thank you that you're not disinterested. I thank you that you know every situation, every story in this room. You've seen the tears. I thank you that you don't just see them, but you weep with us too. I thank you that you're not just dealing with big issues up in the heavens, but you're here present right now by your spirit. I thank you that you're known as the wonderful counselor. I thank you that you're known as the mighty God, the everlasting father. And Lord, I thank you that you're known as the prince of peace. I thank you, Lord, that we have a sure and certain hope that whatever this life looks like, whether it's the Hollywood story or not, that God, one day, you promise to wipe away every tear. And that's something we can be sure about. Thank you, God. Amen. All right, so this is how we're going to finish today. First of all, I want to say, if you, if you don't know Jesus... 
who don't know the peace of eternity, of knowing what happens when your life comes to an end. You can know that today. You don't have to go on a six-week course. You don't have to sort out your life or clean up your act. You can just say to God today, God, I, I want to know your resurrection life. I'm sorry for how I've lived. I want to give everything to you. Best decision you'll ever make, not just consequences for this life, but for eternity.